What's up? Hey Mitch, how's it going? Not bad, dude. I like the studio. It's yeah, cool. it's the new Blocker Intelligence Studio in a top secret, you know, location here. <laughs> first in-person pod too. Yeah, first in-person pod for Blocker Intelligence. Pretty, pretty sick. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm excited to be involved in the first in-person one. So. Absolutely, absolutely. So we have a few topics. It's gonna be a little bit of a different episode. I know, like normally we talk like ask people questions, like Lynn Alden, Michael Saylor, whoever. This time, I think we're just gonna like talk about questions or talk about topics and then go from there. Awesome. So first, first topic that I think we should cover: FTX debacle. What are your thoughts, <laughs> dude? It's been a while, man. I've I've only been in Bitcoin two years, so this is by far the most eventful you know, situation that's gone on. It it feels a lot bigger than you know the Celsius Voyager stuff from earlier in the summer. I guess because you know FTX is a household name, especially now, but even before then, you know. Sponsored the Miami Heat Stadium, their logos on the MLB umpires all season. So it's, it really feels big and, you know, I, uh, I, I think it's fine because as we've seen, you know, on chain, a lot of more people are self-custodying their Bitcoin. So it's really, you learn that lesson one way or another. So I, I think it's best to learn that lesson without taking a huge financial hit. So definitely get your Bitcoin off the exchanges because we've seen the biggest one on now go bust. So. Yeah, no, I mean, totally agree. I think this is, I mean, I got involved with Bitcoin, I guess, in 2017. And this, to me, is this past week was one of the you know craziest, most interesting weeks in the history of, of crypto, but also even just Bitcoin as well. Somehow it feels more exciting than anything from the bull market. Like, I feel like the, the hype of last bull market was like Elon Musk started talking about Bitcoin and then, and then he started talking about Dogecoin. And that, that was just like a whole fiasco. But this feels like even so much more attention on, on Bitcoin and Bitcoin adjacent products. Yeah. Well, I mean, exactly. I mean, we basically found out from FTX that they owed $1.6 billion worth of Bitcoin <laughs> and they held like 1.1 Bitcoin on their balance sheet. So a little bit of a mismatch there. And I think that, you know, it seems like a lot of exchanges or Bitcoin yield products, you know, have been doing that, not just this summer, but potentially since last year. Do you think regulation's the answer? Because I just I don't like to to shill for regulation. That I don't think that should be like our knee jerk response to something bad happening. But you know, it, I could see the argument because they're running Ponzi schemes and it's it's gambling. Casinos are regulated. It's what, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I mean it's a good question. I mean I definitely think coming out of this, there's going to be a lot more regulation, right? I mean when people lose a lot of money in just about any market, like more government steps in, they try to, you know, save the day. Um, so I think whether we think it's good or bad, it's probably kind of inevitable at this point. But honestly, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with SBF because... He was in with the regulators more than anyone else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a great point because, like you said, he was buddies with Gary Gensler, buddies with a bunch of people yeah, inside. And waters and a bunch, of, yeah. a bunch of people, second biggest donor to the Biden campaign. Yeah, it's, it's strange, man, for sure. But, you know, the thing is, like, Michael Saylor was on this podcast a year ago, and he was, you know, asking for clarity on, on regulating between Bitcoin and crypto. It seems like Bitcoiners are, like, avid for, for regulation because they know you know Bitcoin's a commodity. You can't really regulate that in the same way. So it's it's just funny to see that. Like, Bitcoiners have been calling this for a while, and, and, and yeah, regulation's got to probably come soon. So Yeah, it's a great point. I think... You know, regulation coming probably is inevitable at this point. Like I said, 
And it doesn't really affect Bitcoin. I mean, pretty much everyone in the world uh, understands that Bitcoin is a commodity. Like there's no pre-mine. There's no people that are getting coins for free. You have to put in the energy, put in the proof of work to acquire Bitcoin, or you have to convince someone else in the world to exchange their Bitcoin for your product or service. So it's you know, arguably, you know, the most fair money that we've ever discovered as humans. And to me, it's certainly a commodity. And the only thing that, you know, regulation really threatens to an extreme degree, at least, is, you know, a lot of the altcoins that had pre-mines and, and, you know, maybe the insiders ended up getting really wealthy, cashing out at the top or near the top. And then, you know, retail comes in and buys their bags and hopes to... <laughs> you know, get rich in the, you know, altcoin gambling casino. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, well, we'll just see how things shake out then, I suppose. Uh, but the, the great thing is, you know, Bitcoin <laughs> didn't miss any blocks. Like, Bitcoin's yeah. working fine. Hash rate is miraculously, like, hasn't gone down yet. Do you think it's going to? Because what are we at? We're projected for a 1% increase in difficulty. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be very interesting to see how mining shakes out, you know, over the rest of this year, the rest of this winter and into next year. We've been talking about it for a while because a lot of people on Twitter have been, you know, asking me and then just talking in general about, okay, like Bitcoin's down, mining difficulties up, energy prices are rising. How, like, how are, how's hash rates still coming online? Like, how are miners still you know, de deploying more machines and, and hash rate is actually going up. And it's like a pretty interesting question. Like some people were like, hey, maybe nation states are, are now mining Bitcoin or potentially attacking Bitcoin. I think that's, while that's certainly possible, I think it's highly unlikely. I think a lot of people don't understand that in this industry, you know, it's it's very easy to, to deploy a billion dollars of capital into Bitcoin itself because it's just a wire transfer. And then maybe, you know, a week or two weeks of, slowly accumulating actual BTC. But when it comes to deploying like mining infrastructure, mining hardware, manufacturing those rigs, building the infrastructure, plugging them in, signing the pur power purchase agreements, that's a lot of work and it can't happen overnight. So all of this hash rate that's coming online now that has come online since the beginning of this year was planned, you know, in late 2020 and, and 2021. So there's just kind of this lag between the price of Bitcoin and mining difficulty. So you would say that uh, hash follows price. Yeah, I it's a it's such an interesting like debate. I think there's like it's it, generally speaking, yes, but then also I think at certain points the price of Bitcoin can get so far overextended that specifically like 2021 where mining just looks extremely profitable. So a lot of capital that would have flowed into Bitcoin, maybe at 60K, was actually flowing into mining because yeah. mining looked like such an attractive investment or attractive you know, opportunity. And ironically, it may have been one of the worst opportunities <laughs> yeah. to get into mining and to get into Bitcoin. But um, but I think like in the future, you know, buying into Bitcoin and buying into mining is, is something that you wanna do when the margins are low, price of Bitcoin is low, price of mining rigs is low, all of the above, like right now. Yeah, basically, when it seems like the worst time. Exactly. It's the best time. Yeah, exactly. I, I saw something the other day. It's Riot started building their Winstone facility when Bitcoin was $3,000. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I remember back in, this is such a funny like uh, idea, back in 2018, 2019, the bear market, when we were around $3,000, 
you know, like the world was ending, Riot was building their wine stones. They probably thought they were crazy. Yeah, exactly. They probably did. And, you know, Mason Jappa, CEO of Blocker Solutions, was on Riot's advisory board. Oh. Pierre Richard was a bunch of other, like, prominent Bitcoiners, like, that are just, like, kind of regular Bitcoiners on Twitter. <laughs> they were part of Riot's advisory board, and they really helped build out that company. Yeah, that's that's great. When you mentioned, you know, people suspect a nation state was mining Bitcoin, that that could be something here to jam on. Like if I if I were a nation state, how would I go about acquiring Bitcoin? Because you obviously can't announce a market buy. But like you said, you know, building any kind of serious mining infrastructure is is going to be a chore and it's going to be noticeable, right? You're not going to be able to do that in disguise. So it is interesting to think about like how will the first you know nations get into Bitcoin other than El Salvador, right? Because obviously yeah. they can announce it, and yeah. because they're such a small nation, doesn't really move the needle like we we expected. Not not to rag on El Salvador. Obviously, great things are going on down there. I'd love to visit. You know, I hear a lot a lot of good things about how they're really using Bitcoin in, on a day to day sense. But you know, seeing a, a real really powerful like in control nation get into Bitcoin, and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that happen. And I'm curious how they're going to do it. Yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting question. I'm not exactly sure how it's going to play out, but one thing, potential idea is, you know, nation states will be confiscating Bitcoin from, from criminals, like we've seen with the recent yeah. Silver Road uh, uh, hacker. Is that the FBI is like one of the top 10 holders of BTC? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think they just confiscated whatever, 50,000. I think they confiscated in the past like 70,000. I don't think they've sold, certainly they certainly haven't sold the 50,000. I don't know if they sold like the 70,000 before that. But yeah, I mean... The, U.S. government probably has a lot of Bitcoin, and that's a great way to accumulate Bitcoin. <laughs> it's it's interesting, right? Because I believe that the guy they recently they busted for you know he for those who don't know he basically defrauded the people on the Silk Road, found some kind of just bug in the code, and he was just spamming withdrawal because the, the guy who created it lost. He wasn't he was a professional coder by any means, so there yeah. there was a bug, and this guy basically ended up with a bunch of Bitcoin. And from what I understand, the FBI they they basically pressured him into giving up his keys, right? He, he was following, you know, good protocol, not your keys, not your coins, but he ended up caving. You know, if he if he would have not not subsided, they wouldn't have been able to confiscate his Bitcoin. But, you know, it, it, it makes you wonder about the whole, you know, lose your keys in a boating accident type of, is that real? Could could you actually get away with that? Clearly this guy with a, with a huge Bitcoin bag, it, it didn't seem to work out for him. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think I read in the report that he lasted like six months before he, before they confiscated the hardware device, and from six months later, him actually finally giving up. I give him. I give him props. Six <laughs> months, because I, I know they the FBI is probably not holding back, especially after a little while, and, and when he resisted, they probably really put some pressure on him to give up that Bitcoin. So yeah, he lasted six months. That, that's impressive. Yeah. What do you, so? For listeners that may be new to Bitcoin, since we're talking about this whole idea of not your keys, not your Bitcoin, what does that mean and like why do you think that's important? Well, so basically the the most appealing aspect of Bitcoin, it's literally, it's in the name, um, it's in the title of the white paper, peer-to-peer -peer currency. And you, you can custody Bitcoin with no trusted third party, you can send it with no trusted third party. In exchange, FTX, Coinbase, Binance, that's not Bitcoin. You can go there and you can give them dollars and they can, you know, add on their personal centralized ledger, a we owe, what's his face, 10 Bitcoin because he paid for that. But unless you hit withdraw, put in your public address and, and send it there, 
you don't actually, you're not using the Bitcoin network, right? The Bitcoin network exists outside of these, these exchanges and, and private keys are simply the means of, you know, controlling the wallet. It, the private key is the Bitcoin and you can, it's just information. So you can memorize your, your 24 word phrase in your head. You take your Bitcoin with you anywhere. It's, it's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I think to me, it comes down to Bitcoin being like the least uncertain asset. It might be risky as far as the exchange rate in the short term, but the asset itself is very consistent. You know, it's perfectly scarce. It's immutably perfectly scarce. It's verifiably scarce. It's portable. It's durable. It's divisible. It's fungible. It has all of these monetary properties that are pretty much not comparable to any sort of monetary tool humans have ever used in, in history. There's never been anything perfectly scarce. And I, I think it's, it's hard for a lot of people to really grasp that concept because it, it hasn't existed before. You know, time is scarce, but time's not exactly. You, you can't store time in your head. It's just a constant flowing thing. You know, we, you don't, you can't control time, but you can control your Bitcoin and it's, it's just weird to think about like absolute scarcity. I, I don't know how we can really explain it to people other than you just have to really look at, at the, you know, the supply schedule and, and the increasing demand, you know, just think about what's going to happen, right? Over time, more and more people discover Bitcoin, they learn about it and they're like, oh, this is interesting. Maybe I'll just buy a little. And you see the number of people who do that slowly increase over time, but there's not more supply to accommodate them. So it's a simple supply and demand equation, economics 101, what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, it's interesting because kind of going back to FTX, what we started this conversation with right now, the crypto world is kind of completely imploding, especially yeah. like the centralized exchange, the yield product nonsense. And there's, there's no scarcity on an exchange, right? They can sell one Bitcoin to a billion different people like FTX did. So until you withdraw it, the exchanges are, are not scarce. Bitcoin is scarce. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, exactly. And 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 right now we see this entire crypto industry just completely falling apart. And people think you know Bitcoin is dead again. But in reality, if you just flash flash back a few years at the 2018, 2019 bear market, Bitcoin was trading like we said at three thousand dollars. That's over five x return from where we were just four years ago. And things only die once, right? Mm -hmm. There's been what, 500 mainstream articles with the, the headline, Bitcoin is dead. How does something die 500 times? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. And I think it's interesting because like the, the funnel for Bitcoin is kind of like, at this point, everyone in the world knows about Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of a matter of them understanding it and having like confidence in it as like a, a long-term store of value. And, you know, I think more, as you said, more and more people like Glassnode have this, this is a great resource that shows the you know, number of entities on the Bitcoin blockchain. Mm -hmm. And you can clearly see that even during bear markets, that's steadily increasing, you know, pretty consistently. Yeah. And, you know, if when people hear about something enough times, eventually they're going to go around and be like, all right, what is this actually? And we, we know Bitcoin's not going away. And, you know, there's been billions of dollars invested in the mining infrastructure. Obviously, it's here to stay. That's a very you know, low time preference view to build out these massive facilities that take years. Bitcoin's not dead. People are going to keep hearing about it more and more. And it's just a positive feedback loop. When people hear about Bitcoin, some percentage of them dig into it, figure out what it is, realize it's absolutely scarce and they need to get some. And, you know, that over time causes the price to go up. More people hear about it. 
the price goes down, more people hear about it again. And you know, every time people hear about it, somebody's gonna gonna start buying some more. Yeah, exactly. And Bitcoin is extremely volatile, right? We all know this. It goes through these massive bull runs and then these massive deadly bear markets. And to me, I've always said that Bitcoin's volatility is, is a feature, it's not a bug. Hundred percent. The the bull runs bring in you know massive adoption because Bitcoin just goes up ten x in a very short period of time, and the news gravitates toward that. Social media gravitates toward that. People gravitate toward that. Some people get in, and then some people get washed out in the bear market because they don't fully understand what they own. But again, like that's kind of a feature. The only people remaining at the bottom of the bear market are the true hardcore people that you know really understand Bitcoin or at least have the conviction to mm -hmm. to hodl through extremely tough times. And the the time aspect of it is so weird because it's only been a year since Bitcoin was at its all time high, right? But like a year is nothing, but it feels like it was forever ago, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, that's the one thing that I think is very interesting about Bitcoin is that like this Will and I have talked about this before, how like you'll remember like certain periods of your life when like the price of Bitcoin was a certain area. Like yeah. I very clearly remember the March 2020 bottom and like I've some of these capitulations that we've seen on the way down this year. I've, I've had flashbacks to like those <laughs> days looking at the chart. I'm like, oh wow, that's pretty crazy. And that was not even three years ago. And yeah, it, yeah. it probably feels like ages. And yeah. Bitcoin's just been, it's so young still. It's only, it was first blocked 2009. So it's coming up on what, 14 years. It's barely, you know, in its adolescence. So we still got a long, long way to go. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's truly crazy. And I, you know, it's interesting because a lot of people, you know, Safety Dean write, writes books about it. We've seen the Nakamoto Institute, which, which is like an original, like, key resource by Pierre Richard and Bistine. Um, And there's so many other great books about Bitcoin. But I think at the end of the day, like, no one really truly understands what Bitcoin is. I mean, like, yeah. we have, like, a general grasp of what we've created. But at the end of the day, this is kind of like this alien technology that happens mm -hmm. to be a very interesting monetary tool that... For people that you know hold it and get in, and they use it as their savings technology, they end up you know accumulating an extreme amount of wealth, and that's going to you know continue to change the world. It already has changed the world, and we're likely you know just at you know about to probably reach a tipping point as far as like you know the S curve adoption of Bitcoin on a global scale. For sure, and I think something that that's important to think about is you know as Bitcoin gets older, there's all these. An, an increasing number of resources out there to learn about it and furthermore distinguish between Bitcoin and all the other crypto digital assets. And obviously this FTX situation as I think it's been a net positive in that regard because you see, you know, Jack Mahler's was on CNBC, I think just absolutely ripping in anything that wasn't Bitcoin. Brilliant five minute explanation of, of what makes it different. So I, the, the, all this content is, is just really helping, I think. Yeah. I think one thing that a lot of people don't either understand or may not think about is I think economic systems inevitably converge towards one money. Yes, there's like regulation. So like certain countries or certain jurisdictions, you know, use the US dollar, use the euro, use the yen, whatever. It's, I mean, up until in 1913, when we went to, to fiat and, you know, a little bit before then when they started doing, you know, true paperback gold, um, or gold-backed paper, I should say. It was really just gold. Like yeah. Every everywhere in the world used gold for a long, long time. Yeah, because people want money. Yeah, exactly. Because the point of money is to solve, you know, this coincidence of once. You don't want to go to your neighbor and, and trade your cow for 
eggs. You want to have this one most marketable good that you know that if you get it, you can easily trade that with someone else for whatever they have. And then we all converge on this one good and then prices start getting set in that one good. And that good just happens to be what we think of as money. And then certain goods are, are better monies than other goods. And the reason that Bitcoin, in my opinion, is the best money is because of its unique monetary properties, which is you know, perfect scarcity, immutable, perfect scarcity. It's verifiable, divisible, portable, durable, etc. And I think that no tool has those unique properties. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like a very, you know, first principles based approach of evaluating different tools to be used as is money. Yeah. You know, a lot of people say like, oh, Bitcoin's, you know, it's not a unit of account. It's not today. It's not a medium of exchange today. You could argue it's not even a store of value in the short term, obviously. But I think they're looking at like the end game of what money yeah. is rather than, okay, like how does something even become that in the first place? If you wait for Bitcoin to be a universally used medium of exchange, you're going to miss all the gains. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, exactly. it's that simple. And, and, you know, Bitcoin just takes, takes what was good of gold, like store value over time, and what was good of fiat, store value across space and scales, and it combines them into one. Exactly. Yeah, it's gonna be very interesting to see how it you know, plays out. I know we, Blockmore Intelligence recently published a report about Bitcoin's purchasing power, and you led that report. You wanna give us a quick summary of it? Yeah, uh, for sure. So the, the premise is, you know, because fiat's so terrible at being the store value, Humans are forced to save their wealth in other assets. Maybe they're not consciously thinking, oh, I'm buying this house just to save money because fiat's so bad. And you just, you naturally buy these other assets, right? A lot of people's retirement, their, their plan is to invest in you know, a 401k with a match and they put it in the S&P. That's their savings is the S&P, right? But money should be savings, right? You should be able to save, you know, in what you earn, not have to put it in any asset with counterparty risk. Everything has counterparty risk, right? You know, the S&P is the quote unquote safest place to put your money. Treasury bonds also, you know, that's supposed, supposedly safe. But with bonds, you're getting, you know, negative real returns from inflation. S&P obviously can crash huge. Like if someone was planning on retiring this year, market tanks, you're, you know, you're straight out of luck. So all of these assets have, have what's called a monetary premium right there. Their, their value is bid up beyond their, their true utility. The utility of a house, you know, it provides shelter from the, the elements. It, but that, that value is, is way less than the nominal value because people have to use it as, as a store of wealth. So under a Bitcoin standard, everybody will be able to save in Bitcoin. So it's going to you know, take away that monetary premium of other asset classes. And you know, based on our, our rough calculations, were Bitcoin to do that, it would it would have the purchasing power for about twenty two million dollars. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's interesting and it's gonna be very, you know, fascinating to watch how it plays out over the next ten years, twenty years, et cetera. But I truly agree that, you know, people really in your four one K for example, you literally put your money in five probably, you know, millions of different assets if you break down the actual index funds that you're you're probably in multiple, you're, you know, 10 plus index funds mm -hmm. and those index funds might hold other index funds, which might hold, you know, equities in, in China, Japan and Europe and the US. And, you know, those companies might own other companies. And at the end of the day, you're just kind of scattered everywhere because you don't know how to save mm -hmm. for the future. So you're just like, all right, I don't want to keep all of my eggs in one basket. 
I just want to kind of buy everything and hope that, you know, at least some of this stuff is going to go up. And, you know, the, the people we're not talking about here, right, is the people that don't have access to these financial resources, you know, outside of you know, major, you know, like powerful nations like the United States. You go to you know, other places like El Salvador, they don't have, you know, access to the stock market. They can't buy U.S. real estate. Maybe they can buy gold, but that doesn't really, you can't transact with gold. You can't, you're going to bring a shivel and a scale to the marketplace. And mm-hmm. so it's, you know, Bitcoin is, is globally accessible to anybody with an internet connection. You know, more people have, have access to a phone and the internet than they do bank accounts. So that's really, when, when we're in America, you know, maybe you can do the, you know, the 401k thing. And like Michael Saylor says, you can, you know, row exponentially harder against, you know, an increase in current. I think that's one of the metaphors he uses to describe inflation. You might be able to do that in America and just get by, but the people that, that don't have access to financial instruments, they, they can't fight against inflation. Yeah. Yeah. And I would even possibly take that a step further because not only can they not invest in like high quality assets that, you know, we might be able to in our 401k, but they don't even have access to be able to borrow cheap money. Think about it. If you're yeah. a billionaire in the U S as of you know 2020 and 2021 you could borrow money at close to zero percent interest could have bought the s p 500 now you're up i don't know 20 25 percent you know Mm -hmm. from somewhere in 2020 and that was pretty much you know free money for you people in you know africa that may not be able to even get access to the s p 500 let alone acquire capital at a zero near zero percent interest rate so i think the fiat world kind of skews towards like the wealthy having an extreme mm-hmm. advantage for sure and you know i think that bitcoin you know might change that and, and the problem is you know it, it gets blamed a lot on on capitalism but we don't live in a free market unless the money's free I, i'm not the first one to say that but you know just just think about it right when the the cost to borrow money is manipulated by the central bank that's that's socialism it's literally a central bank they're centrally planning money which is the key ingredient to keep the economy going. So we have far from a free market until the money is, is truly free. Yeah, it's so interesting because, you know, like taking an economics class in college, they'll t- explain the basics of like, okay, like this is why we don't centrally plan the market for, <laughs> I don't know, water bottles or microphones, right? Because like you can't centrally plan it. You need the individuals and the market participants all acting in their own mm-hmm. self-interest that naturally finds an equilibrium of supply and demand. But for some reason, money is the one product that we need to centrally plan and that's how it's gonna, you know, best benefit everybody. I mean, maybe it's possible, but to me it seems highly unlikely. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Do you, do you think Satoshi ever thought Bitcoin would, would get this big or do you think he, she, or they, whomever Satoshi may be, just sort of put it out there as like a little fun project? That's such a good question. I mean, obviously, it really depends on who Satoshi actually was or who they were. Um, I don't know. I, I think that. Is it, is it? I don't know. What do you think? Uh, I, it, I mean, it's yeah. I guess it, I don't really really have an idea. You know, that it's hard to to dig into the mind. We all we know is you know Satoshi was was brilliant. I I tend to lean that towards that it was more than one person. I just. I don't see how one person could be so smart and, and foresightful with all the, the incentives that are created and you know the, from that having schedule to the difficulty adjustment to just the energy level and obviously they had some kind of they were definitely libertarian and libertarian minded it's it's interesting to think about it 
they probably didn't foresee it getting as big as it has in in as short of a time, right? Yeah. They didn't expect. So El Salvador adopted it in 2021. In 12 years, they had a nation state adopt their little magic internet money as a as a currency. So I, they probably didn't expect it to go that fast. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think one of the on like Bitcoin Talk or something, someone asked him, they're like, "So how does how is Bitcoin going to work post 21 million Bitcoin being mined?" And I think. He was like, hey, at that point, there's either going to be a lot of people transacting Bitcoin or there's going to be nobody transacting Bitcoin. Yeah. And I think that's you know, a very fair assessment. Um, and I think it was kind of a binary outcome. And so far, it looks like it's going to go in the outcome of a lot of people transacting yeah. Bitcoin. That's a good point. And uh, you did a, a little report on, on that as well with the transaction fees. You want to dig into that? Because I know that's a, that's a common foot, right? You need perpetual inflation as the block subsidy gets lower. There's going to be no incentive to mine and Bitcoin's going to be vulnerable to an attack. So what's your, your counter argument to that? Yeah. So it's, it's such a fun, like interesting debate within, you know, the Bitcoin and crypto community. Cause I feel like a lot of people, you know, poke fun at Bitcoin or, or think that this is theoretically one of Bitcoin's major flaws. And I fundamentally disagree. I think uh, that before you go on, I just will say, it's a theoretical flaw, right? And yeah. all of yeah. Bitcoin only has theoretical problems, whereas we're seeing in crypto, it's all you know reality, re- real problems that are actually happening now. Anyways, keep going, keep going. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so a lot of people think that it's the block subsidy that kind of secures Bitcoin, and I kind of think that's just kind of the wrong way to look at it from the get go. I think private keys and running your own full node, that's kind of what secures Bitcoin. That's what gives you access over your Bitcoin. Um, And right now, you know, people or miners could theoretically censor transactions. They could, you know, even reward transactions so they could come back and say, hey, I I sent, you know, five Bitcoin to you. A miner could be like, actually, you know, no, you didn't and, and start building on the block right before I sent the five Bitcoin to you and then Basically, you know, you could see six confirmations on your node and then later you'd be like, oh, shoot, I have zero confirmations. Joe just basically double spent on me. Um, and, and, and so that, Come on, Joe. <laughs> that would be that would be, you know, one example of a 51 percent attack. I definitely encourage people to read the actual full report because mm-hmm. there's For a lot, sure. lot that goes into it. But the general idea is, is transaction fees are actually what secures Bitcoin. Mm-hmm not, you know, the block subsidy, which is, you know, newly mined Bitcoin. So the idea is, you know, if Bitcoin's where it is today, no one's really attacking it, no one really cares, it's too small. If Bitcoin, you know, becomes very powerful and becomes, you know, a hundred trillion dollar plus asset, it's become the global treasure reserve asset or the global monetary base, it's gonna be very valuable, right? And so transaction fees are actually what's gonna secure Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 51% 51% attacks are, are somewhat th- theoretical anyways. Mm-hmm. We even don't, we hardly even see 51% attacks on other proof of work blockchains. Mm-hmm. And if they do, they don't last forever. Like yeah. eventually they, they disappear and, and, and users can re- resume transacting mm-hmm. normally because it's something that, you know, you, you can only burn resources for, for so long and, and, and not, you know, have any consequences for just burning resources. Yeah. So it's kind of an, a non-economic attack to, to even 51% attack the network. And if you have 51% of the hash, you could mine 51% of the blocks. And right now you'd be making, you know, 10 million bucks a day. So that just doesn't make any sense. To yeah, exactly. Do. And yeah, exactly. And that's a great argument. Once you accumulate a significant amount of the hash rate, you might as well just be mining Bitcoin at that point. Yeah, plus 
you know, the, the biggest mining facilities aren't even, you know, scratching the surface of total network hash rate. So you, it's just, you know, it's impossible to get a facility that big and, or even confiscate a bunch of facilities, even, even close to 51%. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah, and the general idea is even if, you know, a miner does control a large portion of the hash rate, if you're a user and, and for some reason that miner is, is censoring your transactions, all you have to do is, is raise your transaction fee and, and yeah. that encourages more miners to join the network and start you know mining your transaction. Yeah. And and that's you know basically the, the market-based response to censorship. Yeah. And this, you know, it's not really theoretical either. We saw this back in 2017 when you know the block there was, there was not enough space in blocks, there was mm-hmm. high demand to, to transact, people started raising their fees, the block, you know reward in total or the block transaction fees per block went to you know 10 plus bitcoin for a little bit per block and and if bitcoin's a hundred trillion dollar asset and you know say someone's 51 percent attacking the network and no one can transact on the chain they're just mining empty blocks there's going to be a lot of people raising their transaction yeah. fees and it's going to be a gold mine to, to oh, be mining yeah. bitcoin i know i know there's someone out there who's thinking well the transaction fees are so high nobody's going to use bitcoin only reason the transaction fees are high is because everyone wants to use Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and and I definitely think in the future we're going to continue to see like more second layer solutions like Lightning, Fedimint, mm-hmm. side chains like Liquid, Rootstock, and it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, something I'm excited about for sure. Uh, you know what else I'm excited about? It has Blockware intelligence. I think uh, I think we've got got some good stuff going on here. We've got the end of year report coming up, so I'm excited. I think this you know. First in-person pod's gone pretty well, so I think that's that's we're bullish on Blockware for sure. Exactly, yeah. So yeah, so we're filming this, I guess, November seventeenth. Uh, I'm sure we'll post it probably like this week or or, or next week. Um, but yeah, we're coming out with a 2023 forecast, all about macro, Bitcoin, mining. Guys, audience, definitely have to check that out. For sure, yeah. If, if only Blake was here, then we'd have the whole intelligence game. We do need Blake. Um, but yeah, no, I thought this was good. I thought it was a cool, fun, in-person podcast. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm glad we did this. Yeah, I'm glad it's our new studio too. Yeah. So that's great. Shout out to the Moose. <laughs> um, we couldn't, we couldn't get a bear in time, so unfortunately, yeah, we're not killing the bears just yet. But yep. Thank you everybody for watching. Yeah, and listen. Make sure to like and subscribe. Absolutely. Thanks, guys.